This is Asked and Answered. Questions. With Tom Opferman and Steelers Digest editor Bob Labriola. Welcome into another edition of Asked and Answered, the podcast. I am Tom Opferman. With me as always, Steelers Digest editor. You hear him on the Steelers Radio Network pregame before football games. You read him at Steelers.com. He's everywhere Steelers related. It is Bob Labriola. Bob? I got a whole heap of questions here. You haven't seen these questions yet. I I compiled them myself, so you're going to answer them off the cuff. So all the stupid ones, they're your fault. They're my fault, exactly. Anything we get yelled at, you can point them right back in my direction. I'm good at that. Good, perfect. (laughs) Let's get right to it. Our first one comes from Jeremy Flynn from Homer City, PA. When was the last time the Steelers blocked a punt and scored a touchdown off the block? Okay, this is obviously coming uh, after the Bills game where – Miles Killebrew blocked the punt. Uh, Ulysses Gilbert did the scoop and score. So before that, it was the opener of the 2017 regular season, which for the Steelers was September the 10th uh, against the Browns at First Energy Stadium, uh, formerly known as the House of Sadness. Uh, (laughs) It was the first series. The Steelers kicked off. The Browns went three and out, lined up for a punt. Tyler Matakevich blocked Britton Colquitt's punt. Anthony Ciccolo recovered eight yards deep in the end zone for a touchdown. The Steelers won that day 21-18. Usually when you block a punt for a touchdown, you end up winning the yes, game. Yes, or if you give up a punt block for a <laughs> yes. touchdown, you lose. Yes. David Coe from Lima, Ohio asks, I noticed several home teams, including the Bills, last Sunday, choosing to wear their white jerseys normally used for road games. I know the Cowboys always have worn their whites for home games, and many teams in warm climates choose white to try to gain a heat advantage. Am I correct in stating that the home team always has choice of jersey, even in the playoffs, except for the Super Bowl where the choice alternates every year? Yes, David, you are correct. Uh, That is the way it works. The NFL also requires, once shortly after the schedule comes out, the NFL requires that all of the home teams, um, or let me say it this way, each team has to send in um, for their home schedule a jersey choice. And they send in then if they're wearing throwbacks or color rush or any of that stuff uh, so that the opposing teams know what to pack. Um, and so, and you also are correct. Uh, about the playoffs, the home team gets to choose. The Super Bowl alternates um, the choice between conferences every other year. Wouldn't expect the Steelers to be in whites at home anytime soon, though. No, no. I mean that's not um, no. That's a black and gold kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, right. Every it's, single and and I don't really get the heat thing. I really, I mean, <laughs> I I can't imagine. You'd probably be pretty hot playing a football game, no matter what you're wearing. Exactly. <laughs> Wade Ages from Dallas, Texas asks. Are the Steelers still on a record-setting streak of sacks in consecutive regular season games? Did the sacks in the game against the Bills add to their record, or was the streak broken sometime last season? No, the streak is uh, ongoing and extended by a game um, against the Bills. Uh, i got to give credit to Michael Birch of the Steelers' PR department. Uh, The record now is at least one sack. Uh, in 74 consecutive regular season games. The previous record uh, was 69 games by the Tampa Bay Buccaneers October the 10th, 99 to November the 9th, 03. Um, strangely or not so strangely, Mike Tomlin was on that Buccaneers defensive staff from 2001 through 2003, and then he was on the staff until taking the job with the Vikings in 06. Wherever that coach seems to go, sacks seem to follow. 
Lashante Shepard from Sacramento, California asks, is this defense better this year than last year based on our new additions? These include Joe Schobert and Melvin Ingram III for starters. Yeah, I think it's it's possible uh, that this, the 2021 defense can be better than the 2020 version. Um, I wouldn't just necessarily limit the reasons to you know the players in the front seven. I think the secondary um, with Cam Sutton um, is better. Uh, but you know it's one game. I, I, I don't want right. to. We don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves because let's remember the Steelers have 16 more regular season games. Okay, among those 16, they have to play Baker Mayfield twice, Patrick Mahomes, Aaron Rodgers, Russell Wilson, Lamar Jackson twice, Joe Burrow twice, twice, Justin Herbert, and this Sunday it's Derek Carr who completed 61 percent for 435 yards and two touchdowns last Monday night against the Ravens. So. Uh, lots of tests coming up. No doubt about it. Steelers, one of the toughest, if not the toughest, schedule. It is, you know, by NFL. that the way the NFL uh, measures it. Schedule strength. Yeah, by uh, last year's records. But, you know, sometimes that doesn't work out that way. But you I look th- at that list of quarterbacks. I think it will work out that yeah, way. Yeah, it's going to be pretty close. Yeah. Keith Carter from Jacksonville, Florida asks I'm watching the Monday night game between the Ravens and the Raiders. Las Vegas edge rusher Max Crosby is having his way with Alejandro Villanueva. I admit to not paying a lot of attention to offensive line play usually, but was Villanueva this bad last year? Um, you know, I'm not a big believer in pro football focus and the the grades it puts out, but you know, Villanueva got a really good grade last year for his pass blocking, and Ben Roethlisberger was the least sacked quarterback in the NFL in 2020. Now, um, we know that the Steelers finished last in rushing, so I don't need to. I think we can assume that some of that had to do with the blocking. You know, Al Villanueva, um, he's going to be 33 late this month. Uh, since the opening of the 2016 regular season, he's made 86 straight starts at offensive tackle. Um, that doesn't even take into consideration the impact on his body. Remember, this guy was an Army Ranger who did multiple tours in Afghanistan. I cannot imagine that's easy on the joints, <laughs> you know, or any of that kind of stuff. Um I thought Villanueva was going to retire after the 2020 season, but hey, when the Ravens knock on your door, call your phone and say, we got two years, $14 million, with $8 million in guaranteed money we want to give you, uh, I'd take their money too. But again, uh, I think Al Villanueva um, is not long for this league. I think he has a lot more to contribute uh, to this world than being uh, an NFL player, and um, you know, I hope he gets to it soon because... This world can use guys like Al Villanueva doing things uh, that are important, you know, for society in general. Well, I just hope that he's still the starting tackle come December when the Steelers <laughs> pay, or the Ravens pay a visit. Whatever. The, field. Yeah, I don't know if they have these things now on all those betting sites, but uh, if there's an over under on sacks by T.J. Oh, Watt, go with the over. Over, no matter what it is. Going across the pond for this next question, Luca Valentini from Milan, Italy. Yep. Don't you think the Bills made a couple of bad decisions by going for it on two fourth down plays in Sunday's game, especially in the case of the first time when they gave the Steelers good field position at a time in the game when our offense was really struggling? Well, you know, my experience with this kind of stuff is this. If the decision works, it's a good decision. If the decision doesn't work, what the heck was that guy thinking? (laughs) But what I will say is that that is in character for the Bills under Coach Sean McDermott. Uh, that's his history. That's his tendency. Last year, the Bills were tied for first in the NFL and fourth down conversion percentage. So, um, 
you know, that's 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 him. Uh, I, I think that uh, what d- should be said is that the Steelers deserve credit for being prepared for McDermott and his tendencies, and then um, having some idea of how the Bills might try to convert in those situations. Specifically, the one I'm referring to is that play where Cam Sutton tackled um, Matt Breida for a seven-yard loss on fourth and one. Um, the word coming out of the locker room after that game was that the the Bills had showed that exact same formation uh, several times during a preseason, and every time they handed the ball up the middle. So when the Steelers were studying for it, Mike Tomlin warned them that the next thing to come off that, usually that kind of play when you're always running it up the middle, is a pitch to the outside, something quick to the outside. Sutton recognized the formation. The, the personnel grouping was prepared for the um, the quick pitch or the quick throw to Brita and made the big play for the seven-yard loss. Jim Miller from Broken Arrow, Oklahoma, says or asks, great game by the Steelers on Sunday in Buffalo. The block punt was the play of the game. In regard to statistics, is a block punt considered a turnover? Um, I'm sure by the Buffalo coaching staff it is. <laughs> uh, but when you're looking at you know the statistics that um, the NFL compiles, turnover ratio, those kinds of things, no, it is not. It's a little surprising to me, honestly. I guess you are giving the ball back at the end of that play anyway. Well, another so. thing they don't consider a turnover is if you stuff the offensive team on fourth and one. I think that is, in every sense of the word, turning the ball over to the other side. Ed Temple from Johnson City, Tennessee. In the Steelers' win over Buffalo, the announcers mentioned that T.J. Watt had a strip sack. For the record books, does this constitute a sack or a forced fumble or both? Both. Um, You know, T.J. Watt's credited with both a sack and a forced fumble. Um, And let me just explain this a little bit further. Um, Say the uh, quarterback is in the pocket and a pass rusher comes by and strips the ball out. The quarterback never touches the ground. That's still a strip sack. So you get if you do if you get the ball out and the quarterback's in the pocket, you get credit for a sack even if the guy doesn't go down. Incredible game on Sunday from T.J. Watt, the Steelers' one hundred and twelve million dollar man. Bill Titus from Sewickley, Pennsylvania, asks: With a minute and fifty three to go in the fourth quarter, T.J. Watt sacked Josh Allen. Also on the play, there was a holding call on Buffalo that was declined. Then there was a false start penalty on Buffalo. Yet from the end of the sack until the subsequent Buffalo play, the clock was stopped. Keep in mind that Buffalo was then out of timeouts, so the stoppage was even more significant. Were the referees correct in not restarting the clock when the ball was placed? If so, was the net result of the declined holding penalty to Buffalo's benefit, since otherwise the clock would have kept running? Okay, well, here's the, here's the, the big news. The officials got it right this time, and I, I don't this know time. this time, right? I don't know that I can say that uh, all that often. Uh, but here's the rule: okay, inside the two-minute warning in the second half, the clock does not start after a penalty, whether the penalty is accepted or declined, and the clock then won't start again until the ball is snapped for the next play. So, okay, so the Steelers decline the holding penalty that stops the clock. So then the false start penalty comes. But because the false start penalty occurred while the clock was not running, there's no 10-second mandatory runoff of the clock. So then the clock started on the next snap of the ball. The officials were correct. <laughs> it hurts. Wait. It hurt my throat saying I was going to say it's like seeing a solar eclipse on this. It's very rare you see the officials get it right. Michael Wolozin from Oil City, Pennsylvania. We won the first game of the season, but I can't say that Ben Roethlisberger's performance was exemplary by any reasonable standard. 
I mean, 18 of 32 for 188 yards and one touchdown. Yes, there were no interceptions. Not that he didn't try hard on at least two occasions. It seemed to me that he just doesn't have the strength or the accuracy behind his throws anymore. Is he going to make it through the season for us okay? And where was the running game? Only 45 yards from Najee Harris. I thought he was supposed to be the renewal we needed in our running game. I have my doubts, but I need to see him more. Sounds to me like a fantasy football question. How about you? I think so. Talking about your yards. Ben had a pretty good game. Yeah. Um, he outplayed. Buffalo and won. Right. I mean. And, and um, outplayed Josh Allen, yes. which is um, no easy task. Um, but anyway, let's get to the Najee Harris thing. Okay. Uh, so we don't, for some context, Najee Harris is a rookie. That was his first NFL game. I'm going to give you a little context of some other guys, uh, all of whom are in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. (laughs) Franco Harris, first game of his rookie year, uh, 10 carries, 28 yards. Jerome Bettis, first game of his Steelers career, uh, 57 yards on 14 carries, but that came in Bettis' fourth season, even though it was his first game with the Steelers. 57 yards uh, is not a big total. Walter Payton, you might have heard of him. Uh, eight carries, no yards. Emmett Smith, you might have heard of him. Two yards on two carries. So it doesn't always happen, you know, on the fantasy football timetable. And, um, you know, they call it fantasy football because it's not real football. What they play on Sundays that counts in the in the standings is actually real football. So I think we all need to remember that fantasy football is fun to play maybe, and for some people I'm sure it's very lucrative, but um, it's not real, and there's no thought given to fantasy football or fantasy football team uh, leagues or any of that stuff when calling plays and those kinds of things. And I think Najee Harris got better as the game went on as well. Had some timely runs in the second half, including one that set up the touchdown to yes. Deontay Johnson. Yeah. And he's going to be – he'll be better. I mean, again um, – I mean, Walter Payton had zero yards in his day. Eight carries. I mean, eight carries. unbelievable. Yeah, okay. Yeah. It happens. Bob Ellenberger from Elkton, Maryland asks, A September 1st transaction showed the addition of Christian Miller to the practice squad. His name has since disappeared – but no notice has been given in the list of transactions. Is he a Steelers player? Okay, this is something that happens, I won't say often, but fairly regularly when it comes to practice squad stuff. You know, everybody, once the, the, the teams cut their rosters to from 80, this year was from 80 to 53, then they're scrambling to, to get guys on the practice squad. It's similar to after the draft when teams are signing undrafted rookies. And so, you know, you get a lot of, um, you know, guys who say yes and then don't show up, which is what Christian Miller did. I agreed to terms with the Steelers on a practice squad contract, but he never showed up. And so that's why you have a lot of, um, you know, these kinds of things where a guy either shows up on the on the roster and then he's not there anymore or a guy's not on the roster and then all of a sudden he is because you know teams if in a in a situation like this the guy didn't show up so then you have a spot you're trying to fill so uh, I'm sure maybe um you know somebody some other team was in a similar situation and a guy they thought they were going to have uh, ended up on the Steelers practice squad um so that's why always try and caution fans that you know, agreeing to terms is not signing the contract. 
And that's one of those situations where that kind of is illustrated. Bob Ellenberger, watching that transaction list like a hawk. Christian Miller. <laughs> I mean, you just think you get a Christian Miller question, to he's, be honest. He's, um, well, I, I, this is, I, I shouldn't admit this, especially into a live microphone. Um, but I actually uh, kind of heard of him. Uh, because he played at Alabama, okay. and I watch a lot of SEC football because, to me, that's the best conference yes. in America. Don't tell my pursuit of that. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, so I recognize the name, and, um, again, I'm sad to admit that. Joe Watkins from Mishawaka, Indiana, has an injury question. There's not much information on the injuries of high-profile players such as Anthony McFarland Jr., Stefan Tuitt, and others who have vaguely been listed as on injured reserve. Do you know if these are the six-week variety or entire season injuries? Well, um, I don't think they're entire season injuries because if they were, the Steelers would have put them on IR before holding a spot for them on their 53-man roster. See, that's the difference, how that works. That's the, the paperwork trail you have to go through, uh, the administrative things. At the end of training camp, if you put a guy on injured reserve before he has a spot on the 53-man roster, then he's gone for the year. If you carry him on the 53-man roster for 24 hours, then you put him on injured reserve. He only has to miss a minimum of three weeks of the regular season. So the rule in the league is, in terms of reporting injuries, once you say a guy's on injured reserve, then that's it. There is no other mandatory reporting of you know, his status, his improvement, his rehab, any of that stuff. So you're not going to hear anything uh, about those guys. Um, sometimes word leaks out, but I, I can tell you nothing will come from the, the team or Mike Tomlin, that's for sure, because they don't have to do it. So, again, as I said... Because of the administrative procedure the Steelers went through with those guys to put them on IR, I would say that it's not a season-ending thing, but whether it's six weeks, four weeks, ten weeks, I, I can't answer that right now. Well, the sooner they can get those guys back, the better, especially Steph Tewitt. Adding him to that pass rush is a nightmare for well, the Steelers. Well, and what, what, it, what it will really help, I think, is you know when you're, when you're divvying up snaps – for those defensive linemen trying to keep them fresh for the fourth quarter and through the last part of the season, right. you got another guy to eat, you know, 40 or 45 snaps and give you some high-quality play. Jim Smider from Mount Pleasant, South Carolina asks, I always choke a little bit every time I see that the 53-man roster includes a long snapper. Does every team include a long snapper? Why not just train the team center to be long snappers? You know, I get these fairly regularly um, – you know, old school NFL, I get it. Um, you know, Paul Horning used to be a place kicker. Jerry Kramer used to be a place kicker. Sammy Ball used to be a punter. Um, but the, the, the specialization is to the degree where, um, you know, NFL standard for, you know, a punt from snap to kick the ball off the punter's foot has to be less than two seconds. So, you know, uh, the, la the Steelers – were one of the I think they were the last team to have a dedicated long snapper on the roster, and it was Bill Cowers' uh, first team, 1992. The guy's name was Kendall Gammon. Um, let me say this: you know, they, the Steelers were going with Mike Webster, let him long snap. You know, all pro, uh, all pro center, right. Hall of Famer. Um, but in 1988, the Steelers had six punts blocked, six. 
Remember what you said earlier when we started this? Usually when you, you get a punt, you lose those yes. games. They were 5-11 and 11 that year. Um, Makes sense. So that was enough, um, you know, for Dan Rooney for sure. Um, and uh, Bill Cower was hired, uh, and Kendall Gammon was the first of the dedicated long snappers. Well, shout out to Christian Kuntz, fellow Duquesne Duke like myself. There you go. Long snapping the ball for the Steelers hey, this year. And I'll tell you, let me, since you brought him up, a little shout out to Christian Kuntz uh, in the Bills game. Watching it on TV, um, that 45-yard field goal that Chris Boswell attempted in the fourth quarter, that was into a wind. And the angle that CBS chose uh, for that was down field level, and you were kind of looking over Presley Harvin, the third shoulder, who's the holder, right between the legs of Christian Kuntz, who's going to snap the ball. And I thought, wow, this is an excellent view to see if the uh, first-year long snapper, the rookie punter, uh, get the snap-hold thing done for Boswell to make a field goal, which I thought was pretty important. Um, the snap was perfect. I even spun the laces so that uh, Harvin just had to catch the ball and put it down. And that's a, that's Danny Smith has told me that. They look at that. Coaches in the NFL, this is how specialized it is. If you want to be a long snapper in the NFL, not only do you have to have good velocity and good location, but when you spin the ball, it better be get back to the holder so he doesn't have to spin the ball. I'm not surprised to hear that us Dukes are perfectionists in our crafts. So. <laughs> I can tell by working with you here just in these podcasts. Joe Jaloka, Jaloka from Broadbrook, Connecticut. So based on what you've seen at camp and in preseason games, should we be optimistic slash excited that a fourth-round rookie, Dan Moore Jr., is in the starting lineup for the first regular season game, or should we be nervous as hell <laughs> that a rookie is protecting the blind side of the 39-year-old franchise quarterback? Uh, far be it for me to tell you whether to be optimistic or nervous because, uh, you know, that's really kind of out of my uh, out of my pay scale. But the way I look at it is, you know, when the, when the draft started, uh, the Steelers needed to get about the business of retooling their offensive line, and they also needed a running back. And that they were able to get the best running back in the first round and, a, and in the fourth round, an offensive tackle who uh, is good enough – uh, to start at left tackle in the opener and not give up any sacks, uh, I think that's pretty good work by the scouting department. Final question for you here, Labs, from Micah Rittenauer from Tunnelton, West Virginia. Does the head coach have any say in contract negotiations, or is that fully up to the general manager and Steelers president, Art Rooney II? Is management allowed to discuss specifics of contract negotiations with the head coach, or is that forbidden? There's no rule against, you know... Um, the Steelers within the context of their organization discussing contract negotiations with you know whoever they want. I, I'm pretty sure that they don't do that, however, and I'm also pretty sure that uh, President Art Rooney II is in charge of those kinds of things as his father Dan Rooney was before him and his grandfather Art Rooney, the, Art Rooney Sr. was, was before his father. Um, it's usually not good business for the coach to get involved in that. The coach has to coach the players, and if he comes down one way or the other um, on contract negotiations, even to say something seemingly innocuous like, you know, I certainly hope TJ signs this contract, you know, before the uh, regular season opener so we don't have to go through this again next off season. You know, you could honk off him, the, the player who's in the negotiations. You could have some of the other guys in the locker room looking at you like, 
you know, you you got our back or the management's back or, you know, what's the deal with this? So, um, to me, Chuck Noll never got involved in that. Bill Cower never got involved in that. Mike Tomlin has not been involved in that to this day, and I think that that's good business uh, in terms of a head coach keeping his players in locker room uh, all focused on what's most important. That's going to do it for this week's edition of Asked and Answered, the podcast. Thanks so much for giving it a listen. Labs and I will be back again next week with a brand new set of questions for him to answer. So for Bob Labriola, I am Tom Offerman, and we'll talk to you on our next edition of the Asked and Answered podcast.